Hey there, and welcome to the Catholic with a Zen Mind podcast. Today is something new for you. I'm going to be doing a mini-sode, a mini-episode. Last night, me and uh, my cousin recorded my third episode, pillar number two, the Zen Mind episode, which is a very big part of this episode. It is Catholic with the Zen Mind, after all. Um, and after reviewing the episode, um, and I knew this when I uploaded the episode, but after reviewing it, I noticed I uh, left a few things out. I didn't go over the Bible quote or the, the scripture that I used at the, um, at the beginning of the uh, intro. I didn't kind of go over that and how that reflects the Zen mind. Um, and I didn't go over another um, scripture another part of scripture that kind of reflects a Zen mind. Um, And then I did not read the parable of Mushin. So, seeing as I didn't do these things, I figure, well, I will record what I call a mini-episode. So that's what I'm here to do now. It's just a short, I'm going to read a few things of scripture. I'm going to um, I'm actually going to read the definition of Mushin, because it's the character in the parable. His name is Mushin. Um, I'm going to read the definition for Mushin, and then that's all it's going to be, just to kind of follow up with the Zen mind. So this, you could call this pillar two and a half. <laughs> scriptures and parables of the Zen mind, if, you would, if, if, if that would suit uh, your fancies. <laughs> um, so... We'll just go ahead and hop right into it, and I will start just by going over the um, the Bible quote, or the scripture that I used for the intro of the other, or of the episode last night. Um, and I'll even read a little bit more of it. So it's, uh, I, I use the Dewey Rames Bible, it's uh, a little bit more on the traditional side, but I'm in uh, Book of John, Chapter 8. Verse. I'm going to start at verse 3, and I'm going to read up until about um, verse 10. So, And the scribes and Pharisees bring unto him a woman taken in adultery, and they set her in the midst, and said to him, Master, this woman was even now taken in adultery. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us to stone such a one. But what sayest thou? And this they said, tempting him, that they might accuse him. But Jesus, bowing himself down, wrote with his finger on the ground. When, therefore, they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him, cast a, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, stooping down, he wrote on the ground. But they, hearing this, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest. And Jesus alone remained, and the woman standing in the midst. Then Jesus, lifting up himself, said to her, Woman, where are they that accused thee? Hath no men condemned thee? So, the reason I picked this to open up the episode last night is just the nature of, of, of Jesus in his disbursement of this mob. 
you know, this is a pretty uh, popular, uh, well-known scripture. Um, the dis- displacement of the mob, the, the saying, let, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. This is worded a little differently in the Dewey Reigns. This is like the Catholic's version of the King James. But it, the way he acts in dispersing the mob, he doesn't, he doesn't make a grandstand speech. He gets up there, he says his comment, and then he goes about his business of just being, of doing whatever it is that he does. He bends down and begins to draw in the dirt with his finger. There is some debate as to what he was drawing in the dirt and also what that's supposed to symbolize. Uh, like There's a debate saying that he was uh, writing out the personal sins of each of the people in the mob in the dirt. There's, uh, I, there's no... I have no backing for any of these theories. They're just different things I've heard. Just interesting stuff to think about. But he was writing the sins of each person in the mob down in the dirt. There's also theories stating, um, well, not theories, but saying that he was writing the uh, Ten Commandments and that it was uh, symbolizing, because they say that the, it says that the Ten Commandments was written um, on stone tablets by the finger of God. <clears throat> and he's writing them in the dirt. So it's it, it's a connection there. Uh, I, I don't really know, but his his attitude of how he did, how he handled the situation, he he put himself in between the mob, listened to what they had to say, began to write in the dirt while listening, answered with a simple statement, and went back to writing. And then when he answered again, and he says, where, 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 where'd everybody go? <laughs> where'd everyone go? He, uh, he's basically m- making a point that he didn't notice them leave. And if he did, he was trying to be funny, I suppose. <laughs> but, he, you know, it, it, the, the whole story, it just has a whole Zen mind aspect to it, of the way he conducts himself. And I just thought it was rather appropriate for the kind of thing that I believe we were talking about. Especially when I got into the, when we got more into the following the will of God, being led by the will of God. Because um, that's, I mean, that's really what Jesus' mission was about, among other things. Um, we won't get into that now. We'll just move on to the next scriptural Uh, verse that I have here. It's Matthew um, chapter 14 verse 25 through 32. And this is a story about um, the disciples. It was after there was a large crowd and the disciples and Jesus, um, they were um, they were just trying to, you know, move around on on the banks of the, uh, which one is the Sea of Galilee? Might be. I don't quite remember. Anyways, they were in a boat, and it was it's, it's the story of the boat, and there's the storm, and Jesus walks to them on water, and Peter gets out and walks to him and starts to sink. Uh, but it's chapter Matthew chapter 14, verse 25 through 32. <clears throat> and we have, In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking upon the sea, And they, seeing him walking upon the sea, were troubled, saying, It is an apparition. And they cried out for fear. 
And immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good heart, it is I, fear ye not. And Peter, making answer, said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come to thee upon the waters. And he said, Come. And Peter, going down out of the boat, walked upon the water to come to Jesus. But seeing the wind strong, he was afraid. And when he began to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus, stretching forth his hand, took hold of him and said to him, O thou of little faith, why didst thou doubt? And when they were come up into the boat, the wind ceased. So this, I mean, there's a lot that I could unpack from this Bible quote, but a lot of it would not be related to the topic we're here to discuss, which is the Zen mind aspect of the story. So this, this, uh, this story's Zen mind aspect, dang planes. This story's Zen mind aspect is, is, is more about Peter. And when he steps out of the boat and he's walking to Jesus, the, the goal he has is to focus on the Lord, right? And the minute he loses focus on the Lord and, and, and he gets caught up in the seas and all of that, he begins to sink. Now there's a distinct parallel between having a, a Zen mind and losing a Zen mind. Um, and it's a very good uh, scriptural or, or a, uh, uh, a literal representation of a Catholic's version of a Zen mind. Because while a full-blown Zen mind is, is focused around the present moment, Catholics and Christians focus around um, our Lord Jesus Christ in the present moment. So I just thought that that represented it very well. And, I, and as you can see, as the story progresses, while he's sinking, Peter calls out, and the Lord immediately <laughs> rescues him from sinking. <laughs> and they get back in the boat, and the waters are gone. There's, Like I said, there's a lot I could unpack in this, but as far as the Zen mind goes, that's it's, it's a good representation of the minute you focus on the storms, the waves, the sea, everything around you, and you start panicking because it's all crazy, right? Life is crazy. And the minute you start panicking about it all is when you start to sink and you lose your zen, you know? Um, And all you have to do is just either focus on that present moment you focus for Catholics and Christians and you focus on Christ that keeps you in your Zen so to speak so that's that those are the Bible quotes that I have um, so we're gonna move now because this is gonna take some time to read uh, it's quite a long parable so I'm gonna go ahead and get to reading um, before we do that, I am going to uh, define. I am going to define the parable. I guess people are still lighting up fireworks over here. <laughs> I am going to define um, the word mushin. So mushin, we mentioned it last night. We mentioned that it means no-mindedness or thoughtlessness to have no uh, thinking, and you're just in the present moment doing things that 
<laughs> I mean, that's the best way to put it, and that's what Zen is. So, Mushin. Mushin is a Japanese, and Wukjin in Chinese, no mind, is a mental state. Zen and Taoist meditators attempt to reach this state, as well as artists and trained martial artists. They also practice this mental state during everyday activities. So, and that kind of backs up a lot of what me and Mike were talking about last night when he would talk about the swordsman and everything. That they're in a state of mushin. It's a uh, it's a thoughtlessness, a, a no mindedness, no thought, no thought, no mind. What it roughly translates to. So this is the parable of mushin. Now this is a man who whose name became became mushin, I, I suppose, because he his name was Joe. <laughs> so, parable of mushin. Once upon a time, in a town called Hope, there lived a young man called Joe. Joe was much into Dharma studies, and so he had a Buddhist name. Joe was called Mushin. Joe lived a life like anyone else. He went to work, and he had a nice wife. But, despite Joe's interest in the Dharma, Joe was a macho, know-it-all, bitter guy. In fact, he was so much that... I'm sorry, he was, in fact, he was so much that way that one day, after he'd created all sorts of mayhem at work, his boss said, I've had enough of you, Joe. You're fired. And so Joe left. No job. And then, when he got home, he found a letter from his wife. And she said, I've had enough... Joe, I'm leaving. So Joe had an apartment and himself and nothing else. But Joe, Mushin, was not one who gave up easily. He vowed that although he didn't have a job and wife, he was going to have the one thing in life that really mattered, enlightenment. And off he rushed to the nearest bookstore. Joe looked through the latest crop of books on how to achieve enlightenment. And there was one that he found especially interesting. It was called, How to Catch the Train of Enlightenment. So he bought the book and poured through it with great care. And when he'd studied it thoroughly, he went home and gave up his apartment, put all his earthly belongings into his backpack, and went off to the train station on the edge of town. The book said that if you followed all its directions, you do this and do that, and you do that, then when the train came, you'd be able to catch it. And he thought, great! Joe went down to the train station, which is a deserted place, and he read the book once again, memorizing the directions, and then settled down to wait. He waited, and waited, and waited, and waited. Two, three, four days. He waited for the train of enlightenment to come. Because the book said it was sure to come. And he had great faith in his book. Sure enough, on the fourth day, he heard this great roar in the distance. This enormous roar. And he knew this must be the train. So he got ready. He was so excited because the train was coming. And he could hardly believe it. And whoosh! It went by. It was only a blur. It went by so fast. What had happened? He couldn't catch it at all. 
Joe was bewildered, but not discouraged. He got out his book again and studied some more exercises. And he worked and worked and worked as he sat on the platform, putting everything he had into it. Another, in another three or four days, he once again heard a tremendous roar in the distance. And this time, he was certain he would catch the train. All of a sudden, there it was. Whoosh! It was gone again. Well, what to do? Because obviously there was a train. It wasn't as though there was no train. He knew that. But he could not catch it. So, he studied some more, and he tried some more. He worked and worked. And the same thing happened over and over again. As time went on, other people also went to the bookstore and bought the book. So Joe began to have company. First, there were four or five people watching for the train. And then there were 30 or 40 people watching for the train. The excitement was tremendous. Here was the answer, obviously coming. They could all hear the roar as the train went by. And although nobody ever caught it, there was a great faith that somehow, someday, at least one of them would. If even one person could catch it, it would inspire the rest. So the little crowd grew, and the excitement was wonderful. As time went on, however, Mushin noticed that some of these people brought their little kids. And they were so absorbed and looking for the train that when the kids tried to get mom and dad's attention, they were told, don't bother us, just go play. These little kids were really being neglected. Mushin, who was not such a bad guy after all, began to wonder, well, gee, I'd like to watch for the train, but somebody's got to take care of the kids. So he began to devote some time to them. He looked in his backpack and took out his nuts and raisins and chocolate bars and passed all this stuff out to the kids. Some of them were really hungry. The parents who were watching for the train didn't seem to get hungry, but their kids were hungry. And they had skinned knees, so he found a few band-aids in his backpack and took care of their knees, and he read them stories from their little books. And it began to be that while he still took some time for the train, the kids were beginning to be his chief concern. There were more and more of them. In a few months, there were also teenagers. And with teenagers, there is a lot of wild energy. So Mushin organized the teenagers and set up a baseball team in the back of the station. He started a garden to keep them occupied. And he even encouraged some of the steadier kids to help him. And before you knew it, he had a large enterprise going. He had less and less time for the train, and he was angry about it. But the important stuff was happening with the adults waiting for the train. But he had to take care of all his, this business with the kids. And so his anger and his bitterness were boiling. But no matter what, he knew he had to care for the kids. So he did. Over time, hundreds and thousands of train watchers arrived with all their kids and relatives. Mushin was so harried with all that need, 
all the needs of the people that he had to add on to the train station. He had to make more sleeping quarters. He had to build a post office and schools, and he was busy. His anger and his resentment were also right there. You know, I'm only interested in enlightenment. Those other people get to watch the train, and what am I doing, really? But he kept doing it. Then one day, he remembered, while he'd thrown out most of the books in his apartment, for some reason, he had kept one small volume. So he fished it out of his backpack. The book was how to do Zazen. So Joe had a new set of instructions to study, but these didn't seem so bad. He settled down and learned how to do Zazen. Early in the morning, before everyone else was up, he'd sit on a cushion and do this practice for a while. And over time, this hectic, demanding schedule in which he had unwillingly become immersed didn't seem so much of a strain for him. He began to think that maybe there was some connection between this Zazen, this sitting, and the peace he was beginning to feel. A few others at the station were also getting a bit discouraged about the train they, did, they couldn't catch. So they began to sit with him. The group did Zazen every morning, and at the same time, the train-watching enterprise kept expanding. And the next train station down, the tracks there were... The tracks there was a whole new colony of train watchers. The same old problems were developing there, so sometimes his group would go down there and help in straightening out their difficulties. And there was even to be a third train station. Endless work. They were really, really busy. From morning till night, they were feeding the kids, doing carpentry, running the post office, setting up the new little clinic. All that a community needs to function and survive. And all this time, they weren't getting to watch for the train. It just kept going by. They could hear the roar, and some jealousy and bitterness were still there. But still, they had to admit, it wasn't the same anymore. It was there, and it wasn't there. The turning point for Mushin was when he tried something described in his little book as Seshin. He got together with his group, and in the corner of the train station, they set up a separate space, and for four or five days, they would steadily do Zazen. Occasionally, they'd hear the roar of the train in the distance, much like the roar of that airplane in the distance. <laughs> they'd hear the roar of the train in the distance, but they ignored it and went on sitting. And they also introduced this hard practice to the other train stations. Mushin was now in his 50s. He was showing the effect of the years of strain and toil. He was getting bent and weary, but by now he no longer worried about the things he used to worry about. He had forgotten the big philosophical questions that used to grip him. Do I exist? Is life real? Is life a dream? He was so busy sitting and working that everything faded out except for what needed to be done every day. The bitterness faded. The big questions faded. Finally, there was nothing left for Mu Shen except what had to be done. But he no longer felt it had to be done. He just did it. By now, there was an enormous community of people at the train stations working, bringing up their children, as well as those who were waiting for the train. Some of those, slowly, were absorbed back into the community, and others would come. 
Mushin finally came to love the people watching for the train, too. He served them, helped them to watch. So it went for many years. Mushin got older and older, more and more tired. And his questions were down to zero. There were none anymore. There was just Mushin and his life doing each second what needed to be done. One night, for some reason, Mushin thought, I will sit all night. I don't know why I want to do it. I'll just do it. For him, sitting was no longer a question of looking for something, trying to improve, trying to be holy. All these ideas had faded years ago. For Mushin, there was nothing except just sitting. Hearing a few distant cars at night, feeling the cool night air, enjoying the changes in his body. Mushin sat and sat through the night, and at daybreak, he heard the roar of the train. Then, very gently, the train came to a stop in Zach exactly in front of him. He realized that from the very beginning, he had been on the train. In fact, he, he was the train itself. There was no need to catch the train. Nothing to realize, nowhere to go. Just the wholeness of life itself. All the ancient questions that were no questions answered themselves. And at last the train evaporated, and there was just an old man sitting the night away. Mushin stretched and arose from his cushion. He went and fixed morning coffee to share with those arriving for work. And the last we see of him, he's in the carpentry shop with some of the older boys, building a swing set for the playground. That's the story of Mushin. What was it that Mushin found? I'll leave that up to you. The parable is a very good way to describe to somebody the Zen mind. Or at least how the actions come about. He, uh, what was it that he found? She says, I'll leave that up to you in the book. Um, I'll at least give you my opinion. I, he found uh, a sense of um, oneness with everything that we, you know, it's like what we've been talking about lately in the last episode on the Zen mind. He, he became one with the present moment. He realized the facts of the situation he was in. He saw the problems that were around and he just fixed them because they just needed to be done. He did, you know, it's a good representation of how a Zen mind operates. As I tried to stress at one point last night, and I don't think I got it across very clear, a Zen mind is not just wandering around and doing whatever pops into your head and and being completely, you know, I said it a few times, not completely spontaneous, but a kind of spontaneous where you're living at the forefront of your thoughts, whereas 
you're acting in, com- in the same union with your thoughts. Um, if I keep trying to ex- explain this, I'm, I think I'm just going <laughs> to explain myself into a, into a corner here. But uh, if you haven't listened to last night's episode, Pillar 2... Uh, the Zen Mind episode, go listen to it. I had my cousin he, uh, come. He knows quite, knows his stuff. <laughs> he knows quite a bit about uh, uh, Zen Buddhism. We have both have taken an interest into it to our own extent, respectively. And uh, so I, I figured I'd have him come and help me out for an episode and, and be a guest. And We'll, we'll be starting, um, he'll be starting a, a podcast of his own sometime soon, so if, you've, if you're following me, just keep your ears open and you can uh, get a, uh, get an update on when he releases his own show and, and how to find him and support him and all that good stuff, but this has been, uh, this has been a mini episode where all I did just was just read a couple things from scripture and a parable about a guy that can, you know, doesn't really have any thoughts. <laughs> yeah, good old Joe. His name is Mushin. Alright, so, you know the deal. Um, you can find me on Twitter, and, you know, I know it's not, it doesn't really fit my show, but it's what I got to work with for now. So you can find me on Twitter if you want to um, send me any comments or talk to me about anything or. Uh, request anything or you know w- whatever it may be you can find me on twitter at kfc kofc at kfc underscore crusader you'll see a little picture of a nice templar looking guy i ain't a templar but i'm a knight of columbus that's me you can go ahead and click that and uh follow me on there and then you can go ahead and send me messages you know about any kind of episode topics you might want me to cover any questions you have that you felt i didn't cover very well but um, yeah, so if you haven't checked out any of the other episodes, go check them out. Um, and that's been the, this here mini episode of Catholic with a Zen Mind. Um, I'm gonna go. I don't want to keep this too long, you know. But we're the uh, the podcast out here analyzing aspects of Zen Buddhism and building mimics of it out of Catholic traditional teachings, uh, for the most part, I guess. <laughs> it's just a good way to put it so um yeah subscribe like share spread the word so until next time zen hard you know or don't pray harder god bless Me, no matter.